And we're in Exodus 28 and 29 today. Turn there if you have a Bible with you. Exodus 28 and 29. Do you know about the five W's and the H? Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Such simple questions, yet so profound and so revealing when applied to almost any given topic. It was employed by Thomas Aquinas in his five volumes in my study, his Summa Theologia. And Thomas acknowledged that he got it from Aristotle, those questions. So we're not being lazy or unimaginative or prosaic to apply those important, essential questions, those familiar questions, to our study of the book of Exodus. Last week, from Exodus 25 to 27, we saw God meeting with Moses on top Mount Sinai. Now, not just giving Ten Commandments, that's happened. Not just the application of those laws, that's taken place, but... But last week we saw God giving detailed specifications for a tabernacle, a tent for God. And that's really the what of these chapters. The what is the tabernacle. The who, not the band, the who involved in this, it's God and his people in covenant relationship together, in now proximity to each other. Where? Well, of course, it's at Mount Sinai now, but soon they will leave Mount Sinai and they will travel in the wilderness. And that's why they need these tabernacle instructions because they're going to be a people on the go. And that will happen soon. We don't know exactly where we are from Exodus 28 until Moses goes down on the mountain, but he's on there 40 days in total. The win is soon. And why? Well, chapter 25, verse 8. We saw it last week. Look at it again. A sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, says God. Why the tabernacle? Why has God saved? Why is God drawing near? It's a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So Exodus 25 to 27 provides some basic answers to those classic five W's. But it still hasn't explained to us how. How is this going to happen? How will God dwell in their midst? The tabernacle is the what, but we haven't yet heard how. And that's an especially important question when we think theologically and when we think about the literary context involved here. Theologically, we would say God dwells in unapproachable light. His glory in holiness consumes sinners And within the literary context, we've seen just that, starting with chapter 19. The tone was set from the beginning that as God was meeting with his people, coming down upon the mountain, that's good, he's drawing near, but not too near. They cannot come up the mountain. Not the people. Moses can, but not the people. They cannot even touch the base of the mountain lest they die. So how would God then dwell in the midst of his people. You see the contrast? The people can't even touch a mountain that God is atop of. How will God pitch his tent in the midst of all their tents 
in their camp? Well, Exodus 28 and 29 begin to answer the how. It's the priesthood. The priesthood. The tabernacle is not enough. The, the tabernacle communicates God's presence, but it's important that we note that this is a mediated presence. It's not just raw presence. It's mediated presence. We need mediation between God and sinners. That was a need that Job identified in what is probably the earliest book of the Bible. It's not at the beginning of the Bible, but it's likely the earliest one penned down. And Job was aware, painfully aware, of the problem of the distance between God and man. He says in Job 9, God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us, no mediator, no go-between, who might lay his hand on us both. And so as we eventually work our way in the Bible and in the storyline of the Bible, we come to Exodus and if Moses has been a kind of mediator for God's words to the people, and he has, well now by Exodus 28 and following, God is establishing a kind of mediation for his worship, for his presence. Let me start out by reading a section at the beginning of our passage, and then I'll read a section at the end of our passage, and then we'll jump into the middle a little later on. Look down at Exodus 28, starting in verse 1. I'll read the first five verses of that chapter. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." Now skip to chapter 29. We'll read starting in verse 35 to the end. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, sorry, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for, drink, for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain, with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, 
a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Well, there are actually three sections to these two chapters. In chapter 28, we see the priest's clothes. Chapter 29, at least to verse 37, talk about the priest's consecration, a ceremony for cleansing. And then chapter 29, starting around verse 38 and following to the end, it explains their work, their ongoing work as priests. So let's start first with what verse 2 calls holy garments. They're clothes. The whole chapter is devoted to their clothes, 40-some verses. We might pause here just to marvel at that. We may not have seen that coming at the ordination of priests that 40-some verses would describe their clothes. Well, no matter how much or little you think of clothes and picking out clothes and clothes that work and match and all that, I think all of us have a sense for someone looking the part. Uh, Our president, though he has been unconventional in some ways, he he still wears a, a navy suit and usually a a solid tie. That's what presidents do. It's what senators do. Apart from a a detective, um, police on the streets, police doing the beat, they they wear the uniform as on purpose so that we can see them. We know that they represent the authority of the city. In an academic setting, especially around a graduation ceremony, the professors and the administration put on their full regalia, those fancy robes. Or in most weddings, even though there's no standard dress for the bride, she's decked out in a way that no one is confused about who the bride is there. She's the one with the biggest dress of them all, rightly so. In similar ways, God has elaborate plans for the priests looking the part for the work that they do. So verse 2 says, holy garments for glory and for beauty. Holiness, glory, beauty. A threefold rationale for this elaborate outfit designed by God, purposefully so. It's not a uniform for tradition's sake. It's not fashion for fashion's sake. It's God's design. And the specifics communicate Well, some specifics. There's a lot of symbolism here. You see in verse 6, we're introduced to the ephod. I don't know exactly what that is, but apparently it's some sort of apron-like piece of garment. And it's made, according to verse 6, of gold with blue, purple, and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen. And if that sounds familiar to you, you're tracking with Exodus quite well, because It was those materials worded that exact same way back in chapter 25 and 26 that God had planned for the curtain 
in the tabernacle. So immediately you can see some of the significance between the tabernacle and the priest's outfit. The outfit goes with the tabernacle. Same materials, same order. The priest's outfit is for the tabernacle. It's, you could say, part of the tabernacle. In verse 9 we read on, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons or the tribes of Israel. And further, verse 12, it's elaborated upon. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. The high priest will literally bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel as part of representing all the people before God and to God. Then we read of the breast piece of judgment starting in verse 6. Notice it says breast piece, not breast plate, because it's mostly fabric, not metal. It goes over the ephod. And on it there are 12 stones, three across and four down. Notice the specific gems prescribed in verse 17 to 19. You've got sardis, topaz, carbuncle, emerald, sapphire, diamond. Well, these same stones are found in a vision of the Garden of Eden in Ezekiel 28. And roughly these same stones are also found in a vision that John has of heaven in Revelation 21. And again, the, the significance should be staring us in the face. Like the tabernacle was a new garden of Eden, so to speak. And like the tabernacle was a new outpost of heaven, as we talked about last week. So the garments of the priest reflect those very realities. He wears a bit of Eden in him, on him. He wears a bit of heaven on him. And on these stones on his chest, just like the stones sitting on his shoulders, there are the names of the 12 tribes. So verse 21, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets. Verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The high priest bears the people of God on his shoulders and in his heart as he enters the presence of God, representing, as it were, bringing them to God. It's beautiful and rich symbolism. In verse 30, we begin to see why this breast piece might be called, as it is, the breast piece of judgment. Why judgment? Or breast piece of decision, as some translations have. Well, in verse 30, we learn that apparently in the pocket of the breast piece are the Urim and Thummim. Two words, very hard to say. Urim and Thummim. Now, we don't know exactly what these are. They're only mentioned about six times in the Bible, and each time they're not exactly explained. The best guess is that 
They were used by the high priest for the nation of Israel in key decision-making moments. They were to discern God's will, as it were. We get a hint in 1 Samuel 14, where King Saul says, If my son Jonathan's in the wrong, let it be Urim. And if I'm in the wrong, let it be Thummim. Now, Saul had no right to do this kind of thing. That was the business of the high priest and him alone. But we do get a window from that passage into what Urim and Thummim were and how they probably worked. It's an old way of discerning God's will for his people in key moments. And we read on of a robe in verse 31. It's blue with his pomegranates at its hem. Maybe most significant about the robe is that there are bells at the hem. Verse 33 and following, and then verse 35 says, The bell shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You see, the bell signals that the person entering God's presence is the right person. Not anyone. It's the right person, the only person. And of course, God doesn't need the sound of a bell to know who's entering into his holy place. The bells probably are for more the people than God. They would, of course, remind the priest that this is all very serious business. It would remind the people that only the high priest, whom they could hear walk by at times, only he can enter the most holy place. Now, of course, we're skipping some details throughout all this. We've ignored something about cords earlier on, and now you see verse 36. There's the turban with its gold plate, and verse 40 refers to coats, sashes, and caps, which are also for glory and for beauty, We'll leave some of those details aside, and I just want to point out one more detail in the priestly garments, in its underwear. Underwear. I'm not kidding. Verse 42, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. What's all this about? Well, to be blunt, robes are open at the bottom. And if a man isn't wearing any underwear, there's nakedness up there. That's why back a few chapters ago when they were beginning to make altars and sacrifices, God said, no steps, because these men are wearing robes. You say, well, what's the problem, there or now? What's the problem with nakedness, especially when it's covered by a robe? Well, it's all symbolic stuff. It's reminiscent of the garden. Before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, remember, they were naked and unashamed. But after the fall, they realized they were naked. They felt vulnerable, and they sewed fig leaves together for a covering Well, then the high priest can't come into God's presence with any of that kind of nakedness. He can't come with guilt. He can't come with sin. He must come covered. 
down to the underwear. Everything about the priestly outfit spoke of his holiness, specialness, his heavenness, his godness. Holy garments for glory and beauty. And it's about now that we could maybe entertain this question how holy are we talking here? How holy? These aren't just regular guys, right? These are sons of Eve, true? Yes. They're part of the fall. They are sinners like you and me. If we read on, we'll even see them do some really bad things. The clothes, they don't, they don't hide the sin. The clothes don't get rid of the sin. So what about these guys being in the intimate presence of God? Well, that leads us, secondly, to a necessary consecration. A necessary consecration, setting apart, making holy. Chapter 29 prescribes a ceremony before their final ordination. And there's cleansing or washing And then sacrifices are made on behalf of these priests-to-be. Let me read chapter 29, verses 1 to 21. That'll at least get us started with this consecration ceremony. God says, This is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bowl of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour it at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar." But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces in its head and burn the whole ram on the altar." It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. 
and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Well, this is the necessary consecration. This is what's needed for these men to be priests. Their clothes are certainly not enough. What's more... Even more than what we read, it goes on from there, as you can just see glancing down in your Bibles. All this was to be repeated over a course of seven days, every day, according to verse 35. Seven being uh, often a number of completion in the Bible. They need to be totally cleaned up. And so there's the washing there's the anointing, there's the dressing, there is the sacrifice and the application of the blood. And once again, this is all symbolic stuff. The washing didn't really cleanse from sin, but it symbolized the cleansing that was needed. The sacrifices didn't really take away sin, but they symbolized what was needed, the removal of guilt. You could see this in this imagery of the hand being placed on the head of the animal before it's killed, verse 10 and 11. You see, Aaron and his sons have sin. They have guilt. God is just. The Bible says the wages or the payment of sin is death. Someone, something must die. The imagery of the hand on the head symbolizes the transfer of guilt, from the guilty to the innocent, the innocent now bears the guilt and the payment. The remains of the bull were to be burned outside the camp, verse 14. So, so you see the layers here. The, the guilt is slaughtered. Their guilt is dead. Their guilt is burnt up. Their guilt is outside the camp, somewhere else. And this blood is variously applied. There's the application of the blood upon the altar or on its sides. This symbolizes that God is satisfied. God is covered. The application of the blood upon Aaron and his sons signifies they are covered. Blood applied even to ears, thumbs, and big toes, verse 20. The extremities. Symbolizing the whole thing, the whole part, the whole man. Some of the remains are burned before God as a pleasing aroma to God. We'll talk about that in future weeks. And some of the remains are to be eaten by Aaron and his sons right there at the temple. Which once again, like we've seen in previous weeks, signifies acceptance with God, fellowship with God, restoration to God. And all this can be summarized with a single word, atonement. It's used once in verse 33, three times in verse 36 and 37. And atonement means covering, covering. But more than that, it also means appeasement and acceptance. 
The result of the covering is built into the word itself. Some have called the result of the atonement at one mint with God. This is what was needed. What great expense, what great measures. Seven days before these men were ready to be ordained. Three sacrifices a day, new washings, new clothes, new oil to be poured upon. This is what was needed. This is what God provided. Which leads thirdly then to what we could call intercessory work. Once the altar is ready, once the priests have been duly appointed, well, the work gets on way in verse 38, at least that's described. It's described, verse 38 and following, describe what they will do daily. Daily. Verse 38 says, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. This has nothing to the other sacrifices that are mentioned elsewhere. The yearly ones, the, the preparation ones. But just for the sins of the people, on an ongoing basis, there was a morning lamb sacrifice and an evening lamb sacrifice. This is busy work. This is bloody work. This is butchery kind of work. You might think of the priest as high calling before God. Indeed, he did. You might think of the high priest as wearing fancy clothes. Indeed, he did. But his work day in and day out was around the slaughter of animals. And yet this is how, this is the how that we were wondering about at the beginning of our time in this passage. The what is the tabernacle. The who, God and his people. Why? That they might dwell together. How? There's only one way at this point. The priesthood where sinners are cleansed by God, appointed by God to bring sacrifice to God on behalf of the people that God may dwell with them for communion and for worship and for fellowship. Look down at those last three or four verses of chapter 29 again. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory Verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons, I'll consecrate them. I will dwell among the people, verse 45 says. I will be their God. And they will know that I brought them out of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. That's the why. Now, if you're a Christian and you're remotely familiar with the Bible and, and how it works and how it's laid out, you've been waiting for... About 30 minutes now for me to hit fast forward in the plan of God and get us to even better days than this bit in Exodus 28 and 29. And I promise I will. As a Christian preacher, I must. And we did not sing, show us Christ in vain today. But, but don't hit fast forward too quickly 
ponder the unprecedented importance of this moment in redemptive history. Yes, better days are still to come beyond this, but there haven't been any better days thus far apart from the garden before the fall. So think of what the tabernacle and the priesthood would mean for the average Israelite. The t- God meeting upon Mount Sinai is terrifying for them. They plug their ears, they take 50 steps back, they say, Moses, you deal with him, tell us what he says, we can't handle it. Now God says, I'm going to pitch a tent in the middle of you people. What? Ah, but there's more, the priesthood, the mediator that Job longed for, sacrifices made, a visible, tangible assurance that God is okay, that he's happy to dwell with us. Visible, tangible evidence of the high priest representing God to the people and, and the high priest representing the people to God. This is sweet. This is beautiful. It is unprecedented in its importance thus far. And simultaneously, it is undeniably inadequate. It's inadequate. I I alliterated those for you. It's unprecedented in its importance, but it is undeniably inadequate. Never mind the failures that will come when Moses comes down the mountain in chapter 32 and when two priests offer strange fire to God in chapter 33 or 4. The the system itself is inadequate. The clothes represent holiness. They don't make holy. The washing and the sacrifices symbolize guilt transferred, paid for, and settled. But they don't accomplish it. The holy... the, the The high priest represented the people before God, but only as 12 names written on his shoulders and chest. It's not personal. It's not individual. It's woefully inadequate, we could say, in the grand scheme of things. And yet this was the plan for another thousand years. Depending on when you date the Exodus, it's either 1,300 or 1,500 years from Moses to Christ. And of course, that's where we're going. That's what we've already sung about this morning. That's what you as a Christian hold your breath for in the preaching of Old Testament texts. When will we move to Christ? When will we see this unfold? When will the better day come? And indeed, it did come, but for a thousand years, sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. What's needed is, is an eternal priest who doesn't die and doesn't pass the priesthood on to his wayward kids like Eli did in 1 Samuel. What we need is an inherently perfect priest, not one who can maybe get washed up or get paid for, but one who doesn't need that. We need a priest who doesn't wear garments representing righteousness because he is righteous. 
We, we need a priest who doesn't wear garments to represent God's presence because he is God's presence. We need a priest who can bring a perfect, complete, once for all sacrifice, not one that might last 12 hours. We need a priest who can take that perfect sacrifice all the way to God, not the tent of God. And we need a priest who can not only take the sacrifice to the very presence of God, but who will actually bring us with him into the holy of holies. We need a mediator who will bear our personal names upon his shoulders and on his heart. And that's what we have in Jesus. He's the, the who and the what and the when and the where and the why and the how. It all comes together in him. He's Messiah. Which one way of thinking of the Messiah is, yes, he's anointed. Yes, he's the promised one. But, but really, it's, too bi- it's much bigger than that. We have to say, Messiah means he's the answer. He's the aha. He's it. And he became the answer for us, not merely in his coming or in his righteous teaching or kind compassion, but in his sacrificial death. Well before his death and resurrection, Jesus said that he came to give his life, to lay down his life as a ransom for the sins of many, the payment. And when he died, as he breathed his last upon the cross and cried out one last time, Mark 15, verse 38 tells us, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple separating the the holy place from the most holy place. It just got torn. No explanation. Top to bottom, as if this came straight down from heaven itself. The curtain, which was said to be as thick as a man's hand is wide, 25 feet in height, torn top to bottom. Imagine being a priest in those days. What do you do with this? The curtain's just been torn in two. It shouldn't surprise us in light of the torn curtain. But the Bible tells us many priests were coming to faith in Jesus in those days. But it's the book of Hebrews that more fully explains the significance of that torn curtain. So if you would, turn with me to Hebrews. Let's find it for ourselves. Let's see it in our own Bibles, if you would, because the book of Hebrews in many ways is like a a gospel commentary on passages like we're seeing in Exodus 25 to 29 and following. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, just picking up in the middle of the verse, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That's Jesus. To make propitiation or atonement, it could be translated. It's the quenching of God's wrath to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
Or go to chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. In light of that, let's hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How perfect is this? He's both sympathetic and sinless. We don't have one without the other. We don't have a sinless, unsympathetic high priest because he's never been tempted. We don't have a sympathetic high priest who sins, and that's why he's sympathetic to our temptations. No, the best best of both worlds, one sympathetic yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or go to chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That's what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 26. If it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, well, he has no need, like those high priests of the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Or just one more that I'll read for you, and I'll point you to some others. Chapter 8, verse 1. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Of all the furniture in the tabernacle and later the temple, there was no chair. Too much work to be done. Sacrifices had to keep being made. Keep burning, keep cleaning up, fix the wick, keep that burning. They could never sit down. Jesus is seated, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This priest is done. His work is done. So I leave you to read Hebrews 9 and 10, two longer passages on your own later on, perhaps with your family at lunch or with a friend. But see there what it says about the confidence that we can have in Christ because of what he has done and he uniquely has done. And so I ask you, if you haven't yet come to confess Christ in these ways, why not? What are you putting your hope in? If you're a skeptic of Christianity, you might think, this is all so very crude. It's barbaric. It's bloody. And I really don't have much more to say to you than, I know. I know, it is. You might say, this is so weird. Never mind the whole Old Testament sacrifice thing. You worship someone who died on a cross 
and you believe was raised on the third day? And I say, I know. People who saw the risen Savior didn't, didn't believe it until they saw him. But they who saw him wrote it down, and we have it in this book, and it's a reliable account, I believe. There is indeed a, a fine line sometimes between what is fantastical and what is fantastic. And it's up to you to decide what we have here in the Bible with this Jesus and with the God that he has come to make known and bring us to. Is this just fantastical or is this fantastic? I ask you, what are you banking on? What's the alternative? And take those five W questions in the how. Apply them to your life and your eternal life and your spiritual life. What's the what? How is the how? Who? What are you after? Do you really have something better than this fantastic story of God dwelling with a people on account of sacrifice because he is loving and just? Christians have come to believe that we couldn't really be saved from anything less than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We couldn't get to God by trying harder, by meaning well, by keeping our head down, by being nice and trying to spread karma. The gap is too big. The distance is too far. We couldn't have been saved by anything less and the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Hebrews says. Christ is better than anything that came before. He's the one. And so Christians, that means this is all settled for us, right? I mean, he, he, yes, he'll come back again. Yes, Monday will be hard. But the finality and the fullness of the salvation that we have in Jesus now transforms things. Think through on your own. You know your life. What are the implications of the fullness and finality of the salvation we have in Jesus as it's laid out in Hebrews in the specifics of your life? What's this mean for anxiety about tomorrow or the next day? Hey, he, the most important thing is settled and settled really well and settled really firmly. It's done. What's this mean for revenge or bitterness to someone who's wronged you. We've wronged God countless times, way worse than anyone's ever wronged you, and he has settled accounts on account of Christ. What's this mean for our doubts and our lack of assurance of his love? It's settled. Christ has settled it. As we'll sing in just a minute, before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands and is seated, no tongue can bid me thence depart.
Let's pray that that would be true of us and that we'd believe it. Oh, Lord, we thank you for Christ, the answer, the one. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of living on this side of his coming, his dying, and him being raised. We thank you for giving faith to all those in this room that have come to believe. We pray for those who haven't yet that perhaps today, Lord, you would grant them repentance and faith and trust in Jesus that they too would sing with us about this high priest in heaven who has settled things for us before you. We worship him today. Help us to do that in faith and in joy now as we sing. Amen.